Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Grace, and I am the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe. As we head into July and August, we are diving headfirst into our indie summer series with author talks and lectures from successful indie authors across genres. We are also continuing with our four weekly word sprints and are expanding our revamped writing group program. Also, don't forget, applications for our accountability group, the 500 Club, are open. You can sign up for July membership through July 15th, and after that, your application will count towards August membership. I know I'm throwing a lot at you here, but I do hope that you will come to check out our summer offerings and explore the conversations and resources that the cafe has to offer. You can find us online at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. I can't wait to see you there. Thanks for joining us for another week here in the StoryCraft Cafe. And thanks for listening to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. I've got a great interview for you today, but... uh, That kind of goes without saying, isn't it? We have the best guests in the writing world that stop by the podcast. And today we have Joe Stillman, uh, who recently got into writing prose fiction. Uh, You probably know Joe's work, but maybe don't realize that you do. Uh, He was a screenwriter in Hollywood for a long time, and he's still writing uh, screenplays. But he uh, tried his hand at, at writing fiction and has an amazing book, The Man Who Came and Went. But you probably know Joe's work from, uh, from things like Shrek and other uh, giant Hollywood screenplays. And we're going to talk about his journey from writing for the screen to writing prose and, you know, how those two skills kind of bleed into one another and how you take the things that you learn from one thing and use it in another. It's a great conversation. I know you're going to love it. Uh, but before we get over to Joe, Kathleen West uh, stops by for just a minute to talk about being a hybrid between pantser and plotter. And, you know, I believe that most people uh, kind of live in this space between the rigidness of uh, being a hardcore planner and planning out everything before you begin writing and and being a pantser who has no idea what's going on. I, I think the, the, the truth for most people is somewhere there in between. And Kathleen tells us about her process. So uh, let's get on to Kathleen and then over to Joe. I write bullet points, but then I also discover. Okay. So it's usually a hybrid of those two things. And I do find that the magic happens like after I start typing. So, you know, I I think of um, writing as I do running, something else that I also really love in theory, and I mostly love it after I've done it. (laughs) So it's the same with with writing. Like I'm really happy after a good writing day. I almost never am excited to start. 
And I found that if I can just give myself a little bit of freedom when I start, that really helps. So I've taken a couple of strategies to help me with that. And one of them I got from a teacher whose name is Mary Carol Moore. And her strategy is just in the back of a notebook, write out a list of scenes that you know has to appear, have to appear in the book at some point. Just, you know, I, I know this has to happen and this has to happen and maybe give yourself 20 to 30. And then on any given day, pick one that you're going to just take a stab at. So I, it really helps me to write out of order. And then I'm able to kind of get myself going. And very frequently, I will write something that I wasn't aware of, either a character trait or a secret or a interaction between one thing and another thing that surprises me. And those surprises always happen once I force myself to sit down. So I think it's a hybrid. Joe, we begin each show with the same question. We, we've got so much to cover today, but we can't get to any of it until we tackle this first question. That question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, I, I, I thought you were going to ask me, you know, Joe, are you married? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I can't believe I have a, an answer ready. Uh, when I was a kid, the show The Waltons was on TV. You're you're probably too young to remember that. No, I, I, I I'm 50, so I, I watched The Waltons uh, weekly, religiously. John Boy was my hero. Yeah, yeah, he was he was uh, my hero too, and I think it was at the beginning and end of every show. John Boy was writing in his journal, and I think he wanted to be a writer. And uh, watching that show, I, I just wanted a, a journal just like his. So I went out and bought a steno pad, um, which was, you know, a little not quite there because a steno pad has a line down the middle, and I somehow just tolerated that. But I think <laughs> it was watching John Boy that uh, kind of first started me wanting to be a writer. I love that. So, Joe, you know, um, a lot of times we have these these dreams as a kid that there's something that inspires us and we want to um, follow this path. And, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, kind of finding your way in the world and, uh, you know, having to have a place to live and food to eat and um, life kind of tends to get in the way, um, you know, with uh, with the over a thousand authors that I've talked to on the show, very few of them have uh, a story where that was a singular pursuit and a singular purpose. They just had to follow this. A lot of people kind of had a circuitous route to getting to where they are. Um, did was this a singular pursuit for you, or did did other things come along along the way? I. Uh, when I uh, decided to think about what, what the future would be when I was in high school, I, I didn't really think about writing. And I think that was in part because it just never seemed like an option. Uh, so I went to school and studied film. And when I was making short films, uh, I really had zero talent as a director. Uh, but making films was really all about story you know, and writing. And uh, so I got out of that college thinking that I was going to be a director. And to me, in order to become a director, you had to be a writer. So that's kind of why I, I started. 
And uh, I kind of fell into uh, copywriting for movie trailers uh, very much by accident. Interesting. Um, just uh, for, for your uh, listeners who are aspiring writers, I will say that there are, are ways to make money, uh, support yourself as a writer uh, that are not necessarily uh, the medium that you might choose. Sure. But when you do that um, in certain mediums like copywriting, uh, you can make a little bit more money and give yourself some buffer. In other words, you make more money for the time that you put in. And so you kind of buy yourself some time to do your other writing. Right. Right. I've met a, quite a number of writers who began uh, in law. And one reason, because there was so much research and writing involved in the day-to-day work of attorneys, um, you know, an attorney's life is rarely like in the movies where they, they're just courtroom warriors. You know, most of it is is looking up facts and then, you know, finding uh, a narrative to craft around that. And, you know, the work, the, all of the work that goes in before you get to the courtroom warrior and and all of that time spent writing, even though it's not prose, even it's even though it's not the kind of writing you want to be doing is valid. And it 100 percent goes toward earning those those skills i i agree with you i've known a couple of writers uh, one who became a very big screenwriter and the the skill to articulate to research and park yourself at a chair for long periods of time uh all that plus the, all the, the the intellectual challenges of being a lawyer i, I think that all i'm sure feeds into it Joe, I've never met anyone who was a copywriter for movie trailers. Um, That's fascinating to me because movie trailers are a bit of an art form of their own. I I know you're kind of cutting up someone else's work and the other work has a a narrative thread, but you're kind of building a new narrative out of pieces of that. What, what is that like uh, that, you know, do do you start with a blank slate? Does, does the director or the writer say, you know, these are the pertinent points? Like, like how do you take this big piece of work and reduce it to a, you know, minute to two minutes of, of kind of a, a new story? I would say that my first boss um, in in the world, and uh, you know, in the working world of show business, um, you know, after college, he was a trailer cutter, and uh, he worked as a editor in the uh, largest house in New York when it when it was really big. It was a place called Utopia Studios, and trailer cutters, editors, um, film editors, uh, they're artists, and and he was really an artist himself. And it was fascinating to watch him work. Uh, Back then, editing was not done digitally. It was done on 35-millimeter film. And his his whole body was involved in the editing process. And he would reach for uh, a piece of film from the bin, and he would work on the bench. And you got the sense that he was fully involved in the work and it was his body and it was some part of him that, that created. And so I think when trailers are done really, really well, um, a lot of it has to do with the editor. And as, as for the writing of it, it is a creative part of it. Um, and it's a, it's a vital part. Um, 
he as an editor would 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 have the scripts done first and then edit to the scripts. It's a little bit like I would liken it to uh, a lyricist working with a composer. You know, those two ideas, music and, and thought, in this case, editing and thought kind of come together. I love that. That is amazing. Um, Joe, you went on from your work in in trailers to um, writing some screenplays that that just about everyone in our audience would probably recognize. Um, how do you then get to to work as a screenwriter? And um, and and you've done some some pretty notable work. I'll, I'll let you um, rattle off some of those accolades if you want. But um, you know, and does that start with um, a great idea that then other people get involved with, or did you kind of ha- had had you made a name for yourself in the screenwriting world, um, and and then kind of the big projects come along? Or is it a chicken and egg sort of thing? You know, it's. Um I guess I'll, I'll just you know back up just a little bit, which okay. is to say that uh, after college, I spent about I don't know twelve, maybe fifteen years uh, writing spec screenplays, uh, learning how and uh, doing it pretty badly at first, um, and gradually getting better at it, which is kind of how it works, I think, for a lot of writers, whether it's screenplays or novels or or whatever. So while I was doing that, I was writing copy in trailers, and then trailer work in New York City kind of dried up, and so I started working in promos for cable companies in New York, and um, principally I was working for Nickelodeon. And so working for Nickelodeon um, in promos uh, gradually led to working on a show that was actually created by um, a couple of promo people, uh, Will McGrob and Chris Viscardi. They created a show called The Adventures of Pete and Pete, uh, a long-form show. And uh, so I, I knew them from, from promo work, and I, I did an audition and got to uh, work on the show. And so it was kind of a, a gradual, you know, step-by-step process going from shorter form uh, to, to longer form. And um, as a result of working on Pete and Pete, um, well, just to take a, a back step, uh, um, at the time I was working on that, I also started working on Beavis and Butthead. And um, the reason that came about was that... Nickelodeon promos knew everybody in MTV promos. MTV owned uh, Nickelodeon. And so when they started looking for freelance writers, uh, somebody mentioned my name, and and then I started doing freelance scripts there. And doing those two shows kind of put me in, 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 a, in a place where I could kind of get an agent, finally, after, like, I swear, like 15 years. Uh, and that kind of put me in... Um, an arena where I was able to meet people and, and go up for screenwriting jobs. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. 
savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison, and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough-around-the-edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected. The niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. So one of those, uh, you mentioned Beavis and Butthead that you were working on, and the other, uh, a little project that maybe one or two people have heard of, Shrek. Um, how, how did Shrek come about? Uh, I had moved to L.A. after the two shows in New York, uh, Pete and Pete and Beavis and Butthead. And uh, I started working on another show by Mike Judge, uh, King of the Hill. And after... I left that show, um, I was introduced to the Shrek people. They were kind of sort of looking for writers to come along uh, to do, um, how can I put this? It's a longer story, and I'm trying to think of of how to (laughs) kind of approach it. Um, A lot of screenwriting jobs uh, hinge on rewriting. Uh, To get a screenplay right, is really, really a process. You can, okay. you can, you can get a job, say writing a screenplay, or you can write a screenplay on your own, and you can sell it if you're really, really lucky as a spec screenplay. Uh, but between that draft that you do yeah. and the draft that gets uh, shot um, and seen um, on the screen, there is a lot of work. And when I say a lot of work. Uh, we could, we are normally talking about years and the process of growing a story is a big one and it's a, it's an involved one. Um, and it's hard because 
getting to the end um, of 110 pages, say, is not terribly hard. You can you can fill it in and um, okay. Let me back up. It is hard. It's really hard, <laughs> but it, it doesn't necessarily lead to something that is is producible. Um, getting a story good is is really really a process that involves a lot of trial and error. And um, and and here I know I'm talking to your audience that um, is aspiring to write. Uh, being bad is really a, a very very important part of eventually becoming good. And so when I was hired onto Shrek, they had been working on the story for a few years. And yet when I came on, they were still largely in outline form, not in, in script form. And that's normal, especially in animation at the level of DreamWorks or, say, Disney. Uh, they work at it a long time uh, to make it good. And so... That's the condition on, on, on which I, I came onto that project. So one thing that I've always been fascinated with is uh, screenplays are very different animals than prose, um, as as you know, because we're, we're talking about your, your debut novel today. Um, with screenplay, you are um, – the description and, and all of the things that, that make prose – uh, what it is are, are sometimes lacking, and that's up to someone else's interpretation um, a lot of times. And it it seems to me, and please correct me where I'm wrong because I know I'm wrong because I've never done what you've done. Um, but uh, for a screenplay, it's it's very dialogue heavy, and it's it's very much more about um, bringing out the characters. And you know, uh, and of course, you have to do that in prose. But there's there's another element. Um, to prose, um, comparing the two, since you've you've done both and you've done both very successfully, um, what do you see as the things that that differentiate the two art forms? Mm. <sighs> Screenplays are um, are a different animal in in a, in a few pretty important ways. I'm, I'm trying to be succinct here. It's it's really it's a question I love because it's to me it's a really fascinating area. Um, there is a a style and tone to a lot of movies, uh, and I would describe that tone as being very very um, abbreviated, uh, to the point, minimal. Um, and in um, in a sort of gr grammar language that we're we've come to be used to uh, when we watch a a movie, and that sounds a little esoteric. So just to kind of boil it down a little bit, uh, there's a brevity to movie storytelling uh, that doesn't have to exist um, in the in the novel form. We're, we're used to it, so we don't really think about it. But we want our movies sharp and concise and, and, and paced, you know, so that, you know, we get our punctuations and we move on to the next scene. And there's dra dramatic power in, in, in that form of storytelling. And, there, and there's dramatic power in a lot in, in – um, in prose storytelling, 
but the style in, in movies has a lot more um, brevity to it. Uh, I'm not sure if that was just too too general, but um, I, I, I want to be concise. I think about how my wife loves detail and, and, and being concise, <laughs> and I want to get there, because I want her to be okay with this podcast. Uh, <laughs> in dialogue, in movies, so much is stripped away, and and you have the minimum number of words and syllables, uh, and anything else is fat, and a lot of screenplay writing is getting rid of fat because you want the muscle, you want the essence. And in, in prose writing, it's, it's the writing itself, and it's the, it's the feeling that the writing gives you. And sometimes you get that in certain writing, for instance, in the writing of Aaron Sorkin, he, his, his dialogue has that, um, almost a poetry to it. Yeah. Um, but in general, you want brevity and screen work. And I will say just one more thing about it, which is, which is the power of having an actor portray a character just cannot be, be underestimated. In, in dramatic form, uh, what a what a what a character conveys from an actor can give you pages of of, of prose, and and uh, and so you're telling the story as a screenwriter in conjunction with the actors who don't need a whole lot from you in order to really get a person across. You don't have that in prose, and so your job as the prose writer is to absolutely be that character. Well put. Um, we we talk about prose writers or, or novelists or uh, as having, um, for the most part, a very solitary work existence. It, it's you and the story for a lot of days, you know, in your home office most of the time or at your favorite coffee shop or whatever. Um, and then, you know, toward kind of at least for you toward the end of the project is when, you know, maybe an editor comes in, an agent, and then, um, you know, maybe you work on the story collaboratively a little more and then it goes to a publisher and, you know, a little more working and then, you know, cover artists, people come in and um, but, you know, all of that collaboration is kind of on that that tail end 20 percent or, or so. But the vast majority of that is is very solitary work. Um, is that the same for screenwriting or does that just by nature tend to be more collaborative? Every project uh, I found in, in, in my business is different. And so uh, sometimes, uh, especially if you're writing a spec screenplay, or sometimes even if you're hired to write a, a screenplay, uh, you go away for a, a long period of time. Uh, there are, this um, I imagine will be a little bit boring, so I'll try to say this really briefly. Each screenplay, um, if you're going away and writing a screenplay, there are steps. There's, um, you know, like a two-page step. There's an outline step. There's a screenplay step. And between each step, you interact with the people who hire you, and they give you notes. And I'm not going to go so far as to call that a social life, but you do get to interact with people. <laughs> and um, 
sometimes that's the most interaction you get on, in the workplace, and you're really glad for it. And you're really glad, or I should say I'm really glad for the participation and the collaboration because you can't really do this alone for too long. You work in a vacuum. You don't really see what you're doing. Uh, you're, in a, you're in the forest. You're pretty much seeing the trees or the branches. And so it's really good to have somebody outside the forest to come in and, and give you um, opinions. And, and that's where feedback is great. Uh, TV and, and film are, are two very different animals. And, and TV is just a, a really social endeavor, you know, when you're on a staff. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you uh, from a conference table right now because I'm, I'm working in a space that I was able to get because I have construction going on at home. <laughs> and when you work in TV, you spend, you know, 8 to 12 or sometimes 16 hours a day in a room like this with other writers sitting in chairs, um, developing back problems and gaining weight. Uh, because that's the that's the process that's the collaborative process in TV. Screenwriting is is tends to be much more of a of a solitary process. Great, Joe. One of my favorite things to ask people is um, to describe the moment of creation for you. Um, so, and what I mean by that is with the at uh, one moment in time. Nothing about the man who came and went existed in any form or fashion. It just it didn't exist. And then either a character walks onto the stage of your mind, or maybe you're reading uh, an article and it triggers, uh, you know, a moment of creative imagination, or um, you overhear a conversation somewhere, and then these characters just infiltrate your brain, and you know, a story is there. Now it's you know your job as the writer to kind of dig that story out and excavate it and polish it up and and all of that. But but there's a moment of creation that happens what what is that moment like for you i'm going to uh answer that um in a way that might might be a deflection i'm not sure but it's really the example that comes to mind okay one of there my are no wrong answers here <laughs> <laughs> oh if only it was that way all the time <laughs> if only uh, I, I have a favorite movie that nobody's seen, so this is a real chance to kind of just mention it because um, it's a wonderful movie and, and just doesn't get the attention it deserves. It's called Topsy Turvy. Uh, the director, if I, I hope I'm getting his name right, is Mike Lee. And it's, a, it's just a stunningly great period piece um, about Gilbert and Sullivan. And um, Gilbert and Sullivan... Uh, when the movie starts, are kind of in a repetitive syndrome. A lot of their their new 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 musicals resemble the old ones, and and there's a sense that they're not just regurgitating, but they're just not doing very good work. And um, is it Gilbert or Sullivan? I, I forget the name, but one of them goes very very reluctantly to um, a Japanese. Um, how can I put this? Like, um, there's a meeting hall where there's a, a show going on, and 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 people from Japan have come in to kind of show what they do. And he is seeing things that he hasn't seen before, and he's seeing um, people from Japan um, acting out 
Kabuki, and he see, he he buys a samurai sword, and somewhere in the middle of all this, he has a moment where this new stimulation comes to him, and he gets an idea for a new musical. And um, Jim Broadbent is is the actor who plays him, and the look on his face and the joy as this idea comes to him. I, I think is the greatest example I've I've seen in 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 movies um, of of somebody getting an idea and and what that feels like based on Jim Broadbent's um, if I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right based on his expression was that so, a real deflection yeah that was that was perfect that was that was your answer so there's you know how how am I to say that that's not the correct answer for you. Um, in the man who came and went, when when I first started um, looking at the book, um, Joe, I I saw some people comparing you with Neil Gaiman, and I wondered what they meant by that comparison. And when I started reading the book, um, it uh, it uh, the book does not remind me of Neil Gaiman. Uh, in in certain ways, but I think I understood what they meant. Is it kind of all all bets are off? Anything can happen in this book, and you know, um, I, I I love that um, there's a there's a mysterious air um, about the world that you've created, and l- you can literally feel the electricity in the air that's just charged with with the fact that anything can happen. Um, wh- what was how did this book get started for you? What, what was your what, what were you thinking about that that led down the the what if trail that that brought this book about? Well, I would tell you uh, honestly that uh, I had been working on this story uh, as a as an independent screenplay, which is to say, writing it. Um, as a, uh, intended to be an independent movie. That's what I mean by an independent screenplay. Okay. Uh, and I started it uh, around 91. And pretty early on, I got a, most of the really big pieces, um, the characters, um, Blutha and Maybell and Martin and Rose. And, um, and I knew pretty much what was going to happen. I knew most of the story and it was the character of Bill and that side of it. Um, and the spirit of the story, because that to me is the spirit of it, uh, that I was having trouble with and I would write it and then I would stop and go work on a job and uh, be away from it for a few months and then come back, um, assuming that I had a great screenplay waiting for me, um, but realizing that it, it really wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. There was something that was not feeling right. And that happened over an inordinately large number of drafts, probably 40. Um, but the spirit of it really, really mattered to me. It felt like um, oh, sorry. That was my okay. game. Um, it felt like that was the reason for the story to be, and it kind of felt like that was the reason for me to be a writer. Uh, I loved getting jobs. It was such an honor, and uh, 
and 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 it felt like a validation that I I really sorely needed, and I worked with some really great people, but I felt like everything hinged on this for me, and I was having the the hardest time feeling like it was successful uh, as a screenplay, and over the course of uh, yikes, two and a half decades. Uh, <laughs> Uh, where at the end of each draft, I would say, oh, good, I finally done it. It was worth all the time that led up to it. Yay, that time was justified. Uh, only to come back and look at it afterwards and think, oh, no, it's, it's not there. Uh, during that time, uh, the independent film market, which is really what this was intended for, kind of cratered, you know, there, it, it just changed, you know. Yeah. When I started, there was a really vibrant, exciting um, um, market of, of people coming up with with great stories, and you know the film market had changed—not just the independent market, but the overall film market. And so I thought, well, even if this does get made, it'll go on Netflix, it'll disappear, and not too many people will see it. And so I just thought I wanted to exist off my computer somewhere. And, and, and so I decided just to write it as a novel just so that it, it would exist. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. To be honest, I remember your original question. Though. <laughs> well, as, as you started rewriting it as a novel, um, you know, just knowing that the form was changing, that the that the work would be interpreted, um, did that like – did that add layers of complexity? You know, now instead of having the director, you know, decide what the what the visual might, you know, all of that. Now you're required as the writer to fill in all the things that that all of the different people in the collaborative process would have given to the project. Now you are all of those people. Um, you know, did, did that uh, th that fact um, kind of center into your in, into your process? And uh, you know, how did you start? approaching that mm. uh, that was very much a part of the process um and i and i will just say that there was something also that came before that which i didn't know to expect and and this made all the difference for me um we were talking earlier about the difference between writing for screen and, and writing for prose and as soon as i started writing this for prose, um, I was completely free from all the constraints that are required for screenwriting. And that has to do somewhat with the brevity that I had described earlier. Um, but there's something else, too. I think there are certain things in screenplays and in movies that are just not quite allowed. Um, you know, you if you want to talk about something, you kind of sometimes have to talk around it. You can't hit things on the nose too much. Um, I think there's there's just those constraints don't exist in, in uh, at least for me in this project um, in the in book form in the prose form, and so no longer having to kind of squeeze this into that fun but narrow um, framework for movies. I felt like I was kind of finally just like like open to go wherever the story wanted to go. And as soon as I mean, literally the first day I started writing this as a novel, I felt like now I could finally 
to the story. And, and in truth, I was able to do that because it was a novel. I love that. I love that. So you mentioned earlier, Joe, this cast of characters um, that that you uh, have filled this world with. And uh, we've got Belutha and Maybell and Bill. Um, when did you when did you know um, that this was going to be, um, you know, a, a cast of characters and not just a, a, a even though we're. Uh, we follow the story through uh, Belutha. She's our narrator, um, but there's it's definitely this uh, this cast of characters that we're um, that we're joining on this. You know, some some uh, books or, or stories have very narrow focus, and it's all about this one person's experience. But this is is uh, is definitely a, a a cast production, if you will. What what was what were your thoughts about? The, the way that you staged this world and, and who we got to experience the story through. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to give you the best answer. Okay. Be a terrible answer, which is, <laughs> I don't know. Um, sometimes uh, I, I, you know, I want to kind of be a little pretentious and I was going to say, sometimes the story tells itself. Well, yeah, that's, well, this is the one place where that is an absolutely valid question. This, this is the one place where you can say the characters told you something and, and, and nobody's going to look at you askew. We, we all know what that means, but sometimes the story is just cast with characters when we show up as the writer. Hmm. I, I would say this was a, a gradual discovery thing at the beginning. Like seriously, like in the early '90s, I, you know, I'd been living in New York City and and got a house or was renting a room in a house in upstate New York near near Rhinebeck, and walked into a coffee shop because I was drinking coffee at that point in my life and saw a waitress there, and that was Rose, and that kind of started that ball rolling for me and. And it, it kind of worked that way with a lot of the characters. And then once finally, when the process started happening, um, when it came time to think about scenes, the, the, it was the characters uh, where the scenes were, who kind of like formed the, or, the origination or the origin for the scenes. And that doesn't always happen uh, when you write. Um, and it's not always called for uh, in screenwriting. But I think that all writing, when it's, you know, I, ideally um, kind of comes from the characters as opposed to, say, from plot or even worse, from theme. Yeah. Um, because then it feels like it's more human. Yeah. I get that. Um, Joe, um, I'm, I'm going to read something from the book, and I'm not giving anything away because it's literally the first page of the book. Um, but in, you open with, before I can start the story, I have to tell you something that happened near the end of it. I'm sorry if that seems weird, but believe me, you're going to be really glad I did this. Um, tell me about that choice to begin a story that way. Uh in the first draft of the novel, uh, that wasn't there. Uh, I sent it out cold to agents. I did what all writers do. Uh, 
And uh, there was one agent who read the draft. Uh, her name is Emma Sweeney. And she uh, said that she wanted to work with me, which was great news. And she was a terrific agent. She uh, had this um, amazing list of clients and books that she created. And what she said to me is, you have a storyteller uh, who can't possibly know certain things because uh, she wasn't in every scene that takes place, and yet she's telling us what happens in all the scenes. And I thought that was a really good point. And Emma offered three or four um, choices for possible fixes, which itself was a wonderful thing to get from an agent, right? You sure. you hope you you spend your life hoping you you find people who can help you make a story better and, and give you good notes. And one of her ideas was to start the story um, with Belutha um, relating what, what happened um, at the end. So that came from Emma Sweeney. I love that. I love that. So we, we meet this great cast of characters, but when Bill walks onto the scene, that's when things just really go off the rails. And we we have uh, all read stories before, seen movies where we use the trope of the the mysterious drifter. And, um, you know, this mysterious drifter has a, a strange ability. Um, but with Bill, um, he, he goes to work at the diner and he can read people's orders before they give them, which I thought was just hilarious. Um and, and really set up some great things to happen in the story. Where, where did Bill come from? Hmm. I, I guess I would say I don't know. It just uh, early on, it just seemed like how to tell the story I wanted to tell. And it seemed like um, that would be a pretty cool sort of understated weirdness. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so that, you know, something like that. Understated weirdness is uh, is something that that I think a lot of us can can connect with. Um, one thing that is prominent in in this book uh, is is the the undercurrent of humor that's always there. Um, it's not a comedy per se, but there's a, a wry humor that's woven in and out of, of just about every scene in the book. And there's um, almost a snarkiness, but not in an off-putting way. Um, what does the role of humor, um, what does having that tool in your your toolbox as a writer, what what does that allow you to do? Or does it open doors that, that without humor wouldn't be open? Yeah. Um, when I uh, started writing promos at Nickelodeon, um, one of the things that we were all doing, there was this department of amazingly smart and creative people there, uh, in the, you know, back in the early, late 80s, I guess it was. And writing funny stuff was your, was your ticket in. And um, I think that's always been the case. Uh, to try to to have that, it just makes things more enjoyable, and there's a value to it. You know, you know, for any writers, you know, aspiring writers listening to this, um, if you can write funny, that actually is a is an asset that you know you can get hired for. And so, uh, I know I'm kind of all over the map when I'm talking about this, but to me, it's it's such a valuable layer to have, especially if you want to. 
uh, go to a place that's also emotional. The combination, I think, is something that I like a lot when I see it and, and definitely, you know, try to reach for. Well, that, that's what I was going to say, uh, is that even uh, emotionally charged scenes that that uh, that are dark and emotionally um, gut wrenching, even uh, a, a well-placed um, moment of humor uh, brings levity that that makes the other emotions hit harder. Um, it's you know, we, we, we talk about people that are thriller writers or um uh, mystery writers that you know you can't just keep people's adrenaline pegged to 11 for the entire book you know you need to let them off the hook every now and then a- allow them to laugh allow them to emotionally connect with a character so that when you come back with those um with those heavier elements they hit harder because you've you've allowed them to experience the whole uh, emotional gamut the, does that factor into to your thinking about story I think for I for me, if you know, as I think about news stories, um, I feel like I must have um, a layer of funny in there, um, and I'm I'm not sure exactly why, except that it really belongs. And um, and the, what you said is, is is absolutely right on, which is. Um, the, the, the combination uh, of something that, that hits you emotionally and something that kind of undercuts it is, um, is something that I personally, you know, think is a great thing to aspire for. Aspire to. Yeah. Well, the Man Who Came and Went is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, uh, you can. we're going to have links to it in the show notes where you can grab it uh, in Kindle edition or hardcover or go visit your local bookstore and uh, support local books. Uh, Joe, like I said in the beginning, this is one of my favorite books that I've, that I've read this year. Um, and it's, it's one of those stories that just sticks with you. And I feel like I'm carrying these characters with me uh, throughout my life. And, uh, you know, that's one of the hallmarks of a great storyteller. Um, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, is there a place where they can connect with you online? Uh, yeah, I have a website, joestillman.com, and uh, that would be the place to do it. Excellent. We'll link that up as well to make it easy for folks to find you. The man who came and went, go grab it today. Uh, I promise you'll uh, you'll thank me for it later. Joe, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. It was really, really great talking with you. 